the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. For almost 50 years, a woman had a constitutionally protected right to obtain an abortion in this country. That all changed Friday when the U.S. Supreme Court issued an opinion overturning Roe v. Wade. But what reasoning did the Supreme Court give for this change and how does that affect us here in Michigan? Constitutional law expert and University of Detroit Mercy Law School Dean Jelani Jefferson Exum joins us to discuss the decision and what it means for you moving forward. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. It has happened, and even though we've been bracing for this moment for over a month, it still seems surreal. On Friday, the United States Supreme Court officially overturned Roe v. Wade, ruling that what a woman uh, used to have a constitutional right to do, to obtain an abortion, a right that has existed for almost 50 years, is no longer granted. That means I, like most people living in America, have never existed in a world where women could be precluded from exercising their right to choose. This is a truly significant moment in our history, and any true understanding and recognition of it must recognize that there are many people who are celebrating what has occurred. There are many who believe the court has saved the lives of countless unborn potential human beings that otherwise would not have a chance at life. Still, Any true understanding of this moment must also observe that there are many Americans, and perhaps, most importantly, many women, for whom Friday's decision brings true despair. Memories, apprehensions, or concerns related to permanent injury, physical assault, and loss of bodily autonomy. Indeed, studies have shown that there are negative outcomes for women when restrictions are placed on abortion. Accordingly, our conversation today occurs with this understanding. That as a man, I understand that the most significant impact of this decision is not directly felt by me. But I also understand that five of the six male justices on the nine-person court ruled in favor of the plaintiff. A majority of justices ruled to eliminate a woman's right to choose. And this is not the end of the dispute. Justice Thomas appears to invite challenges to other rights in his concurring opinion. And pro-life advocates appear poised to seek legal bans on abortion throughout the country. Thus, whether you agree or disagree with the decision, it is crucial for us all to understand what occurred in this case and to get a better grasp of where we are and where we are going. What are the ramifications of this decision? What are the legal arguments? Why did the court make this ruling? How does this change our lives? Jelani Jefferson Exum is the dean of the University of Detroit Law School, and she is an expert in constitutional law. She is uniquely qualified to help us unpack the U.S. Supreme Court's decision and what it means for us living here in Michigan and what we can expect moving forward. Dean Exum, thank you for joining us and welcome to Detroit Today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on, especially considering this is our first opportunity here to tackle this discussion. And we will be discussing it throughout the week, including when Stephen returns. But I want to start off just 
in terms of the final opinion. We saw the draft, but now we have the final opinion. Uh, what is your analysis of the Supreme Court's ruling in this case? Well, I, I really do want to start by saying I appreciate the way you framed this entire discussion. For me, I think it's so important that we just have an understanding of really what the Supreme Court did and how it approached this this question. Um, we have, of course, had decades at this point of controversy and um, a, a variety of opinions on abortion, but this case really was one that was fundamentally about liberty. And so I think that's important to understand. And so what the court did is it said that in the 14th Amendment, which gives us a right to due process, which we've understood um, for several decades, of course, dating back to, um, to Roe and also before that case, that within that understanding of due process is the concept of liberty and that it encapsulates liberties that are not actually written out in the Constitution. So we have a lot of liberties, a lot of rights that we enjoy, even though those specific words are not in the Constitution. And in Roe v. Wade in 1973, the court determined that reproductive choice, reproduct reproductive decisions, bodily autonomy, that was all also included in this concept of liberty, even though those specific words are not written into the Constitution. What the court did in the Dobbs case that we're talking about now is that it said because abortion is not specifically written in the Constitution as a right, it questioned whether it came underneath this broad concept of liberty, as has been understood for the last 50 plus years. And what the court ended up doing in looking at the kind of historic foundations of abortion rights and abortion care, um, looking at the um, the understandings of the founders of the constitution of the country in drafting the constitution the court said we don't believe that abortion is the type of fundamental right that we should automatically read into this concept of liberty therefore because it's not written in the constitution and the court decided that it's not a fundamental right sort of rooted in our country's traditions and history they said it is not included in um, our due process protections Following off of that logic, does that mean that this court is saying that any of the protections that we have right now must flow from some recognized right that existed at the time the founders created the Constitution? So that's the interesting question, and that's a reason why there has been, apart from all of the abortion care concerns that you that you raised, um, that there's a concern about the further legal consequences of this case. The majority opinion written by Justice Alito, says that this opinion is solely about abortion and that all that it means is that, and when I say all that it means, I realize that this is obviously a very um, deep and heavy decision, but to the court, they said this does not go beyond the right to an abortion. However, we have Justice Thomas's concurrence where he says, no, in fact, if we're going to say, as Justice Thomas has wanted to do really since his time on the bench, yeah. if we're going to say that all of our rights must be either enumerated in the Constitution or they have to be deemed fundamental by the court such that you know, they're, they're rights that date back in history that we can say are really rooted in our nation's history. Um, if we're going to say that, if that's the reasoning for overturning Roe, then we have to go back and look at a lot of other cases that were built on this concept of liberty. It's called substantive due process. It's giving a liberty, um, liberty substance to the due process clause. And we have several rights that have been built out through the substantive due process clause, including if we are sticking with kind of thinking about um, bodily autonomy and reproductive choices, the right to contraception, 
is not written in the Constitution. It comes from the understanding of substantive due process liberties. And also the right to marriage had been rooted, according to the court, in the liberties and privacy rights that are not necessarily enumerated in the Constitution, but that are fundamental to our our um, history and understanding. And Justice Thomas called specifically, explicitly, in his concurrence for the court to revisit those cases. I want to get back to the concerns that we have about revisiting those cases or what the long-term ramifications of this decision is. But I also want to make sure that we understand what the decision is not, right? This is not a decision that says that uh, uh, the right to abortion is outlawed in uh, the country. It's just that uh, it is precluded or the Constitution doesn't protect it. So now the states make the determination. Is that correct? Correct. So I think um, just to back up a little bit, I think it's an important educational piece to understand that all of the rights that we have in this country either come from the Constitution or from our individual states. And so what the court has said in Dobbs is that the Constitution does not give a right to an abortion and therefore it reverts to the states. States can give that right either in their own constitutions or through legislation, but it also means that states can bar that access through their legislation or quite frankly, also through their constitutions if they so desire. And so um, the Supreme Court has put this squarely into the hands of the states. And that means that we'll have a patchwork of different approaches across our country dependent upon what states do. That brings us to Michigan, where we had our own uh, abortion law ban that has been in place for a long time, right? Dating back to 1931, uh, though, of course, it wasn't enforced ever since the Supreme Court decision in Roe. And currently, uh, the uh, our administration has said that they're not going to enforce it. However, it's currently going through the courts. Uh, what stage are we at with the challenge to the Michigan law here in uh, our state? So there's currently an emergency injunction holding up the um, implementation of the current, I guess we should say the old, the 1931 law, which would ban abortion and abortion care in pretty much all ways. And I do think it's important to note that when we're thinking about what different states might do, you have states that already have laws like that that are being triggered now where abortion is pretty much totally illegal. That's what the Michigan 1931 law would, would um, that's, that's basically the approach of the 1931 law with very little room for exception. Um, we do have some states that allow for abortions only in the instance of medical necessity. That's the state that um, Michigan law is in now that um, we've been operating under for, for quite some time. That's where things are um, because the, because of the injunction, Michigan is still a medically necessary state. But as soon as things work through the court, we'll see if the 1931 law is then um, revived. It's only really been um, in abeyance or, or suspended, I suppose, if you want to say it that way, because of the protections of Roe. With those gone and it going back to the state, the discussion really will be around what Michigan state constitution allows and whether or not the 1931 law is a violation of any protections in the Michigan state constitution. If not, then we can expect to see that um, pretty total ban on abortion in Michigan unless there are further le- there's further legislative action. We're speaking with Jelani Jefferson Exum, the dean of the University of Detroit Mercy Law School here on Detroit Today regarding the opinion 
of the Supreme Court uh, overturning Roe in the Dobbs case, as uh, she is an expert in constitutional law and uniquely qualified to uh, let us know uh, what's happening with that decision. But we also want to hear from you during this conversation. You can give us a call at 313-577-1019. Now that over 50 or almost 50 years of Supreme Court precedent has been taken away in terms of the protection of a woman's right to choose, how are you feeling? Are you an individual out there who has a story to convey about this? Do you have concerns? Do you have a question about the legal ramifications? Or do you just want to let us know uh, what you think of the decision? We want to hear from you. 313-577-1019, and we will loop you into the conversation. So one of the things, uh, Dean, that we were discussing earlier, you mentioned that in the majority's opinion, they stated that uh, uh, even though Thomas said it could work its way towards other Uh, rights that did not exist at the time of the founding of the Constitution, that the majority said this is limited specifically to Roe. And one of the reasons I think we would believe that would occur previous to this decision is stare decisis, or the idea that you have to have judicial restraint, the idea that you don't overturn a previous ruling. However, in this case, like we've mentioned, the court decided to overturn Roe. What's the history of that happening in the Supreme Court? Do they often overturn their own decisions? It doesn't happen often, and part of it is because the concept of stare decisis is to allow us all to have some confidence in legal precedent, to understand that, um, especially when cases get to the Supreme Court and that there's a decision, that it's well settled and that we can operate under that understanding, which is why, in thinking about Roe lasting for almost 50 years, certainly most of us um, who are alive today either have had this concept of this broad concept of liberty, including reproductive choices, um, lasting our either our entire lives or a great majority of our lives. And that's really what stare decisis does, is it says that there is this precedent that we can rely on and we can operate without um, concern that rights will shift um, regularly. Right. And so so we don't see this happen very often. Now, of course, it has. It has happened in the past. And the court does have sort of its own test for when it will overrule cases. And according to the majority in Dobbs, the court felt that this was the time. Of course, we have very strong dissenting opinions who said that this um, sort of saw this as a, a cavalier um, overturning of cases that it stood for so long and that that really would jeopardize confidence in um, in the court, but also in us understanding that our, our rights are not rights that are going to shift um, quite frequently. And so we don't see it happen often, but it has happened before. Um, I will add that a, a case, of course, that's come to the forefront, the court mentioned it in its majority opinion, and many people have talked about it, is Plessy versus Ferguson, right? So the case that upheld separate but equal and was, of course, precedent that was overturned by Brown v. Board of Education. Right. And so that's an example of of um, the court overturning precedent, but I think a very different example, and I'm happy to talk through that as well. All right, and we will get into that. Uh, I want to talk about the specific ramifications, of course, of this decision. One of the things is we know that many states now, as you mentioned earlier, have the trigger laws, the laws that have different ways that they're banning or limiting women's rights to abortion. Of course, in America, we also have the right uh, to travel across state lines. And so there may be some conflict, and I know there's concern with people about the ability to maybe go across state lines and how that can impact the right to choose. Uh, And uh, I was just wondering, as there are some states who have said they're going to try to limit or perhaps punish people from out of state or in their own state uh, who would 
try to work around the bans that they have. Uh, what is the current legal framework? What's our understanding of the ability to prosecute someone out of state or the ability to cross state lines in relation to a woman's right to choose as it stands right now? Yeah, it would be very difficult for states to prosecute individuals for traveling for any sort of abortion care. And this is because we do have a constitutional right to travel. And um, this was something that was mentioned in the Dobbs case is recognizing that that right still stands. And so it would be difficult. Now, this doesn't mean that there won't be attempts um, or that there won't be um, you know, if we're thinking about criminalizing individuals or penalizing individuals for travel, it could be that states attempt to um, to limit doctors or hospitals' ability to give care to people who are out of state. That could be um, who are out of state residents. That could be something that happens, but it would be difficult to stop individuals from traveling for care legally. Now, we also have, however, the social realities, which is that for many people, it would be very difficult for them to travel to other states for abortion care. Typically, when people are seeking abortions, and I say typically, and I, I really shouldn't because this is such a nuanced um, issue where people come to this place with a variety of beliefs, a variety of, of, um, of needs, a variety of experiences. And so there really isn't a typical case. But what I can say is that numbers show us that it is um, oftentimes very hard for people who are in certain socioeconomic um, situations to be able to travel because of work, because of their own funds. And so it may be practically difficult for people to travel out of state, even if it's not legally impermissible to do so. We're talking again with a Dean Exum of the University of Detroit Mercy Law School, the dean of the school, Jelani Exum. And I want to talk to you about confirmation, the confirmation process and judges sticking to their word, because Senator Joe Manchin, who voted to confirm Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, recently commented that I trusted Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh when they testified under oath that they also believed Roe versus Wade was settled legal precedent. And I am alarmed that they chose to reject the stability the ruling has provided for two generations of Americans. I want to play a brief clip clip with some of their remarks that they had for you to listen to. So a good judge will consider it as precedent of the United States Supreme Court worthy as treatment of precedent like any other. Senator, I um, said that it's settled as a precedent of the Supreme Court entitled to respect under principles of stare decisis. And one of the important things to keep in mind about Roe v. Wade is that it has been reaffirmed many times over the past uh, 45 years. We have two justices during their confirmation hearings making statements directly regarding this that one senator thinks may be uh, a lie under oath, basically. Is this cause for impeachment? Is there anything actionable with uh, this contradiction of statements? Is there even a contradiction? You know, I don't, there's, there's nothing actionable here. The, the concern comes from the fact that we do have this nomination process, this confirmation process, where we are trying to find out from justices what they um, are likely to do. The problem, of course, with that is that we also expect justices to take each case before them, you know, review the case. And so it, we, we can never really rely specifically on what's said in a nomination process. It is um, very much political theater. 
And though we would hope that justices will say things that um, do give us some indication about what they'll do on the bench and that we hope that they would speak um, with basically revealing you know, their, their actual values. Um, as far as impeachment goes, we would be looking for a, a justice who had done something criminal which, which we wouldn't see here, because even if a justice is saying that they see this as precedent, well settled, uh, what one no justice has ever said, and I would never overturn X, Y, or Z case, because they, they simply couldn't. So, um, so this isn't a case, I don't believe, where we would see impeachment or a cause for impeachment. But what it does is it does erode confidence in the nomination process, and it does um, further erode um, really public understanding of what those confirmation processes are for. If we do see a lot of change from what justices say they expect to do and what they actually do. Yeah, if you listen to those comments, they definitely said, oh, absolutely, stare decisis. Precedent has to be respected, but they never said, uh, I would not overturn Roe versus Wade. However, they led a senator to think that. So what's the point of these confirmation hearings if we're not getting good information to rely on, right? You know, I think we saw that in the most recent confirmation hearing of justice, soon to be justice, Katanji Brown Jackson, that a lot of it was not really focused on the um, the substance of the substance of judicial integrity and um, understanding of the law and reliability and trustworthiness. It really was focused on those flashpoint political issues. And that's what abortion has been for so long in this country. And so those questions were really meant to be more of um like I said, political theater than giving us a real understanding of what justices will do, how they feel, what their ideology is. And I do, yeah, that is regrettable in my opinion that um, that we have had so much sort of, I guess, political um, uh, controversial points that take over our confirmation processes. We're speaking again with the University of Detroit Mercy Law School Dean Jelani, excellent expert in constitutional law, but we'll be speaking with you next. I have Karen in Macomb County, Ed in Detroit, Phyllis and Warren. We're going to be speaking with you uh, when we come back on Detroit Today. And we still have a question that the dean brought up related to what can we do moving forward? What will the legal challenges be and the merits of those? We're going to get into that and speak with you when we return on Detroit Today here on 1019 WDET. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson and glad to be joined by the dean of the University of Detroit Mercy Law School, Jelani Exum, taking your questions and commenting about this uh, historic monumental decision overturning a woman's right to choose that has lasted for nearly half a century here in this country. We've got phone lines and we want to talk to you about it. 313-577-1019. Starting off with Karen in Macomb County. Karen, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. So I have a lot of comments in at the end. Um, I do have um, an answer to the question, how do we move forward? Um, first of all, this decision from SCOTUS is so egregious. It just, it truly shocks the conscience. 
it just reduced um, women to being second-class citizens, and we're not going to stand for this. A handmaid's tale is not going to become our reality. Um, in my opinion, this also obliterated stare decisis. It violates the 14th Amendment rights. Um, this is a slippery slope into hell because more uh, landmark decision cases are now on the chopping block. Uh, Justice Thomas has already blown the dog whistle that contraception is next. Um, the foster care system is already severely overburdened. There's over 100,000 kids still waiting for adoption out of 400,000 kids, and it's only going to get worse. Um, and these Three justices who lied under oath, they need to be held accountable. If an attorney behaves unethically, you can file a complaint against them with the Attorney Grievance Commission. If a judge behaves unethically, then a complaint can be filed against them with the Judicial Tenure Commission. However, nothing is in place to hold Supreme Court justices accountable when they behave in an unethical manner. And we do not need politicians and judges making our health care decisions. It is so outrageously offensive. Now, in regards to what can we do in moving forward, there is a petition that is circulating right now, and everyone has the opportunity. Uh, the last day for signatures is June 30th, and the website is mireproductivefreedom.org. So the way to find where you can sign the petition is to look for volunteer and sign and click on that and scroll down to the bottom where it says frequently answered questions yeah. and you can find where to sign the petition because that's crucial. We need to get this on the ballot yeah. this November. And also one last thing, ahead, um, out of all the tri-county prosecutors, of course it's going to be a man trying to tell women what they can and cannot do with their bodies. And so out of all the tri-county prosecutors, we've got Macomb County, um, Pete Lacido as the Macomb County prosecutor saying right. that he would enforce the 1931 law. So we're stuck with him for another two years. He needs to go. Sure. I, I really appreciate your comments, Karen, and you bring up some uh, really good points and information for people to have out there. I think we touched on some of the issues as to uh, potential impeachment, as well as uh, the ability for prosecutors as it exists now uh, to execute those laws. But she does bring up one point that, and I've heard this also, uh, Dean Exum, it's about the ability of the Supreme Court with stare decisis to overturn rights that have been granted. And I've seen things say that this is the first time the Supreme Court has ever granted a constitutional right and taken it away. Is that accurate? Well, I mean, it, it depends on how we think about it. I wouldn't say it's completely accurate, but in our timeline, in our in our um, lifetime, I guess I should say, um, there certainly has not been a time when there's been a right. And when I say a right, I don't really mean the right to abortion, but I really mean is a conception of liberty right. 
that um, that we have had and held that has been changed in a very dramatic fashion. This, I would say, is um, is really a significant moment because of that. That this really is about. This was not, you know, even though the Supreme Court said that this is solely an abortion case, the fundamental reasoning for declining to hold that there is a constitutional right to abortion is because the court decided to narrow its view of liberty. And that is very significant and can have ramifications in other cases, certainly. We have uh, other phone lines open right now. I'm going to get to some of your calls, but right now we have Ed in Detroit. Ed, you're next on Detroit Today. Good conversation. Thank you. The framers of the Constitution recognized that there were unenumerated rights when in the Bill of Rights, uh, or at least the framers of the Bill of Rights, adopted the Ninth Amendment. The Supreme Court, at least in our lifetime, has used the Liberty Clause with the 14th Amendment to give the Ninth Amendment life. If you, and I think the judge understands this, read Justice Alito's opinion closely, he's brought into question that whole line of cases. And the remarkable thing about many of these cases is they affect people who didn't have political rights at the time the Constitution or the 14th Amendment, for that matter, were adopted. I think that the court and Congress is going to have to come to grips with that reality, with with that issue, if it becomes an ongoing reality. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much for your comment, Ed. And he raises a very nuanced point. How do we reconcile that issue uh, in your opinion, Dean Exum? You know, what I what I take from the caller's comment is um, really thinking about voting. And I think this is an important point to to discuss because the Supreme Court has said this is not a right granted in the Constitution. um, It all goes to the states and it can be a legislated basically a legislated issue, there's the assumption then that people in various states will speak um, using their vote. So if you're in states where you have um, people who really do want this restriction to abortion, they will say that at the polls and they'll elect legislators who will then go on to enact laws that restrict abortion. And if you're in states where you have people who want um, broader um, access to abortion care, they will go to the polls and they will vote and they will elect legislators who will um, implement those broad protections. However, I think what the um, caller brings up is that voting is imperfect in the sense that there are many voices that are not captured in voting. And so regardless of the states that you're in, there will inevitably be communities of people whose um, whose views, whose opinions, whose realities are not reflected in um, in that majority voice and therefore not reflected in their elected representatives. And so there's always been the thought that the Supreme Court protects the rights of those minority communities and voices. And when I say minority, I do mean racial minority, but I also mean economic minorities. I mean cultural minorities. Right. And this will vary from state to state. And so the Supreme Court has always been seen as, and I shouldn't say always, but in our modern times, seen as the protectors of those minority rights. So giving something to the states 
really does um, mean that there will be voices of minority communities that won't be reflected in these conversations. The phone lines are open 313-577-1019 to get in on the conversation. Before we get to Brad and Rochester Hills, we're also monitoring on Twitter and we do have your comments coming in. Specifically, Ed says he understands that adoption is not the answer to everything. The average cost is $20,000 for domestic adoption. The poor will be affected most by this decision. We also have Big Neo on Twitter who says now we have the ho- have to hope that the GOP will fight for universal pre-K, universal child care, and universal health care for all the children that may be coming from this decision. Right now, we have, as I mentioned, Brad in Rochester Hills. Brad, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Yeah, how you doing? Uh, I just uh, wanted to let you know that uh, uh, the that there are uh, at least a few uh, uh, of my uh, fellow uh, parishioners at uh, my uh, uh, church community in Rochester Hills that uh, have uh, at least one of them who is a good mutual acquaintance of mine who has connections to Right to Life Michigan chapter, and he was very well uh, pleased at uh, how the conservative uh, justices at the U.S. Supreme Court did what they had to do to overturn Roe v. Wade as of uh, last Friday, and uh, this is going to, uh, while it's going to cause uh, those uh, on the left of center on the pro-choice movement to start uh, uh, panic and riot in the streets as it's been in certain places in the country, I think uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade did uh, what we had to do to uh, protect the, the, the sacred uh, human dignity of uh, the uh, in the prenatal state of in their mother's womb, even before conception. And as a staunch pro-lifer, I'm also uh, a very um, uh, um, strong on uh, defending the respect of the, the human life from immediate conception to natural death as uh, my uh, conservative uh, uh, Christian background uh, defends uh, by far. And one of uh, my fellow neighbors who's uh, on the same page as I am, we're just talking about it over at uh, lunch uh, on Saturday before I went to church, and and he was very well pleased that uh, this uh, really had to happen. Well, I thank you for your call, Brad, as we do hear from the other side. And I think a lot of what we're hearing from Brad and from people who are pleased with the decision is this idea, again, of life beginning at conception. However, in terms of the uh, opinion that was rendered by the Supreme Court in Dobbs, uh, they didn't really touch on that, uh, as I understand it. Was life beginning at conception? Did that have anything to do with this decision? And do you have any uh, responses to Brad's comment? So the, that concept didn't have anything to do necessarily with the legal underpinnings of the decision. And so as I explained before, this really was about whether there was a source of a right to an abortion in the U.S. Constitution. Where would it come from? Where Well, it would come from the 14th Amendment Due Process Clause and this understanding of substantive liberty. And so the court says, hey, when we look at the 14th Amendment and we look at this concept of um, liberty through due process, We understand that if there are rights that are not enumerated in the Constitution, that we're going to do a different type of analysis where we're looking at their fundamental nature. And here the court says they did not believe that abortion was a fundamental right. Now, I do think it's very important to say that um, given that legal analysis, what the court didn't have to do 
was to get into a religious discussion around abortion. Um, didn't have to get into beliefs about where life, when life starts, um, which is the discussion that we've, of course, had sort of in our own religious spaces, in our political spaces. And so the court really didn't have to wrestle with any of that because it really was just saying, is there, um, how do we conceive of liberty? And I think that's the really important takeaway here is do we want to have a broad conception of liberty and um, when we think about our rights or a more narrow one? And the court took a more narrow one. I do, I do want to say one other thing in response to the, um, to the previous caller, because of course this is a very nuanced issue. And I, I also think that we've done ourselves a disservice in this country by making it such a one side or the other side political issue, yeah. because in reality, the way most people um, experience their, whether it's their faith, their own experiences, their, um, their background, their understandings when it comes to abortion, is that it's very nuanced, that it has um, a lot of pieces to it, that very few people are either, you know, always for or always against, and instead um, have very complicated views and thoughts. And I think we do better talking about it in that way. We'll see if that you know, it's very hard to legislate with nuance. We'll see if we see any of that reflected in um, in the laws to come. But um, we haven't yet, and we've talked about it in our political spaces very much as though there's just one side or another side. I think you raise an excellent point there, which is one of the things I think we're trying to do here today in having this conversation. There are a lot of nuanced viewpoints, and when you look at something as completely one side or the other uh, without necessarily understanding where some of those nuances are, where some of the other people are coming from, uh, a lot of times we can talk past each other. So hopefully today we can clear up some of that miscommunication while also hearing from you. 313-577-1019. How are you affected by the decision? Are you happy? Are you sad? Uh, we want to hear from you, what you're feeling, what we can do about it, what your concerns are, uh, so that you can uh, speak with us and let us know and uh, ask your question, and we will give you whatever answer we can. Next up, we have Phyllis in Warren. Phyllis, you're on Detroit Today. Hi, good morning. And I, I, I'm almost ready to use all kinds of profanity. So well, don't do that, because we want to keep you on the line. <laughs> I'll control myself. <laughs> this is absolutely ridiculous. All of the conversation that I have heard never speaks of women. It's always about the right to life and abortion, or the Supreme Court, or Justice Thomas, or Justice somebody or other. And I want to know, I want the world to know, I want the United States to know that this population consists of women. Women Females, call them what you will, but here we are. And if we're going to take some of these concepts that are out there, then we don't even have the right to vote because that wasn't written into the original Constitution. We don't even have an end to slavery. That wasn't written into the original Constitution. So where does the Constitution fit? in all of this? Is it just a game that some people play? What is happening here? I am female. My other females, I'm going to tell you, we need to go to her land. We have to start our own community. We have to be away from the male population and stop this nonsense, because we did not impregnate ourselves. It happened in a cooperative manner. Yes, you could call it 
desire, you could call it sex, you could call it anything you want, but it did take two to tango, as they say, and we have got to stop making women non-existent, not even worthy of words, not even worthy of verbal description. Women have that child inside of them. Women bear that child. Women care for that child. Women are the mothers, the housewives, and whatever. And that the man can go off and impregnate 12 people, 12 women, and that and it doesn't matter. Then yeah. there are now 12 pregnant women out there, and one guy out there doing all of this. Is he the one that's in charge? Is yeah, he so the it's... chief? We are Women, women have to start saying something and rising up. And if we have to, then we'll create create our own state and have the state of women and have our own constitution and make our own rules because we obviously are not fitting into this society in the manner in which we should be. And I congratulate Dean Exum on her. Uh, position, and I appreciate her information, and I find her information most valuable, but she's a woman, and so am I, and we're not equal, and we're obviously not even mentioned in the Constitution. Well, so, uh, Phyllis, I, I really appreciate the passion that you have for this topic and jumping in and uh, giving us your comment. I do want to take some time before we have it. We're coming up on a break. I want to take some time to give uh, Dean Exum an opportunity to respond. I mean, we do live in Michigan, a state where our executive, our uh, attorney general and our secretary of state are female. So going to the ballot has helped to get a lot more female uh, involvement here. But uh, what are your responses to uh, uh, Phyllis here, uh, Dean Exum, before we go to a break. Well, first I'll say to her, thank you for congratulating me. I appreciate that. Um, I, you know, I do think it's, she's, she's correct that um, when we talk about issues like this, we do have to talk about communities who are impacted. Yeah. And here, of course, um, any changes to laws regarding abortion will disproportionately fall on women. And I say disproportionately, and I don't even know that that's the right word. They will, um, you know, all, right. oftentimes almost exclusively fall on women um, or other pre- on pregnant persons. And so it's important that we have outlets for um, people to really speak from their experiences so that we can learn about the actual um, consequences and ramifications of this decision. I think that's hugely important. I do also think it's important to note that um, that not all women are going to feel the same. This is where I talk about there being very nuanced, this being a very nuanced, complicated conversation. Right. And um, that's all the more reason for us to have it, for us to really understand what's happened in this court case, what's happening in our respective states when it comes to legislation, and to have the opportunities for people to stand up and share their experiences and to... Um, to allow us to really make sure that we're moving it forward in a way that doesn't leave anybody behind. That, that's and right. That's hugely important. I agree 100%, Dean, and thanks for being here to help us with that. We've got one more segment with you, and we are going to continue on Detroit today. Also, listening and taking your calls. 313-577-1019. Detroit con- Today continues in just a moment. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. 
Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin filling in for Stephen Henderson where we're talking about the Dobbs decision released by the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. We've got a lot of calls, so we're going to ask you to get to your points as briefly and succinctly as you can so we can fit in as many as we can. And starting off with Mike in Dearborn. Mike, go ahead with your question here on Detroit Today. How do. Uh, thank you. And uh uh, hello, Dean. Uh, wondering if the Dean could explain uh, what impact the the uh, overruling of Roe might have on the question of uh, viability of the fetus. In other words, if, if Roe has been overruled, does that mean now the issue of when life starts is up in the air and that each state, then one that does have uh, a, a constitution saying, oh, we'll, we'll allow abortion, that viability might be deemed to start maybe in the eighth month or something like that. And and, and if you could consider also a second question on this issue of uh, a gentleman before brought it up, the the uh, Ninth Amendment, how does that differ with the way analysis is being done uh, using the Fourteenth Amendment? Uh, are the rights uh, differently treated under uh, those two, the concept of liberty under those two? amendments. Thank you. Thanks for your call, Mike. Go ahead, Dean. Okay, excellent questions. On the issue of viability, I think it's important to go back to what the court had actually done in Roe and in Casey. And so in finding that there was under this concept of liberty, so the substantive due process, a right to um, reproductive choices in Roe, the court then set up a trimester framework for when um, the states could step in and regulate abortion and when they could not. And then when we get to the case, um, Casey, in 1992, the court, that's when the court uh, inserted this this, um, concept of viability. And the court's goal there was to balance a woman's right to reproductive choice against a state's interest in protecting viable um, life. And so there the court left it where if, if um, before viability, there would be, and this means in viability, I should say, was, it was always from the start an unclear concept, and it would be treated differently in different states um, and understood differently by different medical experts. When is a pregnancy viable? When um, could a, a, a fetus be developed enough to live outside of a woman's body? Um, but certainly before then, according to Casey, uplifting this broad concept of liberty in Roe, Casey said pre-viability that the um, the right to an abortion was unrestricted, but post-viability, there were some tests that allowed for states to sometimes step in in different ways um, to restrict abortion, and we saw that in various states. Now, with the overturning of both Roe and Casey, we really have this viability language off the table. And again, what this means is that everything is given to the states. If states want to have laws that are around viability, and I'm saying that pre-viability, there is broad access to abortion and abortion care, but that post-viability, there are these restrictions. States can do that post-Roe. I'm sorry, post-Dobbs. If states want to say that viability is not an issue at all and that the state wants to grant broad access to abortion and abortion care, states can do that 
post um, Dobbs. And if states want to say that um, viability doesn't matter at all, that um, from the moment that there is a detectable pregnancy, that there is no longer access to an abortion, post-Dobbs states can say that. And so that's what I meant at the start of this program when I said there will be a patchwork of um, access to abortion and abortion care across the states now that Dobbs has said there's no protection in the, in the U.S. Constitution and instead everything comes from whatever the states will give or restrict. All the more reason it's going to be very important in all the states to get out there and vote and make your voice heard with what your opinion is with regarding these matters. Also, with regard to the Ninth Amendment that came up again, I don't know if you wanted to take a brief moment to touch on that. Sure. What I'll say about that just quickly, and I'll say, you know, I teach constitutional law and this is a place where students are always baffled and sort of like, you know, I have to draw diagrams and, you know, have PowerPoints and things to explain it. But I'll say this, that in the Ninth Amendment, there's a recognition that there are unenumerated rights, that we have rights that are not spelled out in the Constitution. And um, so what the court did in thinking about, and this is the court, you know, several decades ago, in thinking about the Fourth Amendment and due process, they've said that that's what gives life to the Ninth Amendment, that we say that through due process liberty, this is where we find, this is where we figure out what our unenumerated rights are that are referred to in the Ninth Amendment. And so um, if you read the Dobbs opinion, you'll see the court making reference to um, our enumerated rights and then also our unenumerated rights. But if they come through the 14th Amendment due process clause, they have to be fundamental. So they have to be fundamental to our history, rooted in our nation's history and tradition. Those are the only unenumerated rights that the court is willing to find. That's the sort of life that it's giving to the Ninth Amendment. Um, And what we've seen now is that the court is narrowing its view of what counts as a fundamental right in ways that um, we we hadn't been used to over the last 50 years. Thank you so much for your call, Mike. Uh, it's very helpful and very appreciative. Marilyn in Bloomfield, you are next on Detroit Today. Hello. My question is legal. Um, this decision was based on a presumption that life begins at conception and that we don't have rights to privacy. My question is, can we establish law that says that Child support begins at conception. For example, could we take DNA when babies are born, or do fathers have a right to privacy that would overrule their obligation to the children that they conceive? Thank you, Marilyn. I've got about a minute left. Dean, go ahead. I'll say that we, um, we've been living in a time of a certain view of liberty and privacy during the Roe and Casey era. That has now been shifted, and so the world is wide open to make arguments about privacy, about liberty that um, that folks come up with that they think will be more protective given some of the um, the consequences of this decision. And so for all the bright legal minds out there, if you see something, if you see something that you think will come from this opinion that you want to protect, um, if you see something that you want to address, now is the time to make those novel legal arguments because the door is open. I mean, that's basically what we have here. We have an opinion that really opened everything wide up, uh, open. Uh, a lot of set precedent has been blown apart and the states are left to pick it up, which is why it's so important to think about the vote and and why it's so important also to not forget about the women who are affected by this. That's why we're having this conversation, to give you the best information possible. And Dean, you gave us a bunch of great information. Thank you so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Thank you, as always, for having me. It's my pleasure. 
Tune in tomorrow when Stephen returns to discuss inflation and what the federal government is doing to attack the issue. As you are listening to Detroit Today on WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. The show is produced by Sam Corey. The program director is Joan Isabella. And the technical director and engineer is Matt Trevethan. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. And I do want to let you know that throughout the week, we will be discussing this topic further in depth and attacking it from all angles. So keep tuning in to Detroit Today as we continue.